a little bit of uh, housekeeping first. And before we begin this week's Tabas After Hours, I would just like to say a big thank you for sticking with us. This is officially our 27th podcast, meaning we have almost consecutively released a new podcast every week for six months, which I think is awesome and slightly unexpected. Uh, Carrie and I are the queens of procrastination. Like, seriously, it's ridiculous. So it's probably a surprise to the both of us that we've actually stuck to it. Queen is understatement. And honey, you should see me in a crown. Nice Moriarty little reference there for you. Well done. Um, Obviously, there have been times when we haven't been able to upload. Um, Me losing my father just before Christmas. And various times the plague (coughs) has struck (laughs) one of us down. But we come back and we still get the listeners, which means so much. Like, seriously, so much. Um, We have listeners in pretty much every continent around the world, except for South America. So if you know anyone in South America, hook us up. Come on, help us us become global. Yes, definitely. Exclusive. Yeah. And what we're going to do, this is almost going to be like a series two, starting from tonight. Um, We thought we'd use the first six months to kind of get our feelers around... Um, with how podcasting works we've done a couple of different openings ones that we aren't quite happy with ones we are um so we thought now we kind of we know where we are mm-hmm. at the moment we know how we want this podcast to go we know how we want it to sound and we want it to be a bit more polished so from now on it's going to be slightly different but it's gonna be more like a so think of this as season two Ooh, okay. yes so, so beginning season two tabus after hours now This week on Tarbis After Hours, we have a bit of story time, telling the surprisingly dark origins of arguably one of the most popular fairy tales. And on this week's Ridiculous Death, we demonstrate why it's a bad idea to build your own alarm clock and then have a party. I like it. Yeah, it's it's intriguing, (laughs) and when you hear it, you'll be like, ouch. Okay, uh, this week's episode is slightly different to any episode that we have done before. Um, It still verges on historical, but with a bit more fantasy. Like you said, this week we are discussing um, a true story of a Walt Disney classic fairy tale. Where it comes from, who wrote it, and the ending that's not so happily ever after. And the Brothers Grimm version, which is more bloody and a bit more foot choppy. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm talking about Cinderella, or otherwise known as Ash Putel. Uh, we will do a Brothers Grimm podcast at a later date, possibly around Halloween, maybe, because a lot of their stuff is actually really quite dark. Yeah. Um, but now we shall start by essentially reading the Grimm Brothers version to you. It's not that long, so bear with us, um, and then we'll discuss the history of the fairy tale. Sound good? Fab, are you sitting comfortably? Have you got a drink? I do. Let's begin. Once upon a time. The wife of a rich man fell sick, and when... She felt that her end drew nigh. She called her only daughter to her bedside and said, Always be a good girl, and I will look down from heaven and watch over you. Soon afterwards, she shut her eyes and died. She was buried in the garden, and the little girl went every day to her grave and wept, and she was always a good girl, and she was kind to all about her. The snow fell and spread a beautiful white covering over the grave, but by the time that spring came and the sun had melted it away again, Her father had married another wife. This new wife had two daughters of her own that she brought home with her. They were fair in face but foul of heart, and it was now a sorry time for the poor little girl. What does the good-for-nothing want in the parlour, they would say. They who would eat bread should earn it first, away with the kitchen maid. 
Then they took away her fine clothes and gave her an old grey frock to put on, and they laughed at her and turned her into the kitchen. There she was forced to do hard work, to rise early before daylight, to bring the water to make fire, to cook and to wash. Besides that, the sisters plagued her in all sorts of ways. They laughed at her. In the evening, when she was tired, she had no bed to lie down on, but was made to lie by the, uh, by the hearth among the ashes. And as this, of course, made her always dusty and dirty, they called her Ash Putal. Now it happened one day that the father was going to the fair, and he asked his wife's daughters what he should bring them. Fine clothes, said the first. Pearls and diamonds, cried the second. Now, child, said he to his own daughter, what will you have? The first twig, dear father, that brushes against your hat when you turn your face to come homewards, said she. Then he bought for the first two fine clothes and pearls and the diamonds they had asked for. And on his way home, as he rode through a green copse, a hazel twig brushed against him and almost pushed off his hat. So he broke it off and brought it away. And when he got home, he gave it to his daughter. Then she took it and went to her mother's grave and planted it there and cried so much that it was watered with her tears. And there it grew and became a fine tree. Three times every day she went to it and cried. And soon a little bird came and built its nest upon the tree and talked with her and watched over her and brought her whatever she wished for. Now it happened that the king of that land held a feast, as kings do, which was to last three days. And out of those who came to it, his son was to choose a bride for himself. Ashputal's two sisters were asked to come. So they caught her up and said, Now comb our hair, brush our shoes and tie our sashes for us, for we are going to dance at the king's feast. Then she did as she was told. But when all was done, she could not help crying, for she thought to herself she should so have liked to have gone with them to the ball, and at last she begged her mother very hard to let her go. You, Ashputal, said she, you who have nothing to wear, no clothes at all, and who cannot even dance, you want to go to the ball. And when she kept on begging, she said at last, to get rid of her, I will throw this dish full of peas into the ash heap, and if in two hours' time you've picked them all out, you shall go to the feast too. Then she threw the peas down among the ashes, but the little maiden ran out of the back door into the garden and cried out, Hither, hither, through the sky, turtle doves and linnets fly, blackbird, thrush and chaffinch gay, hither, hither, haste away, one and all, come help me quick, haste ye, haste ye, pick, pick, pick. Then first came two white doves, flying into the kitchen window. Next came two turtle doves, and after them came all the little birds under heaven, chirping and fluttering in, and they flew down into the ashes, and the little doves stooped their heads down and set to work. Pick, pick, pick. Then the others began to pick, pick, pick. And among them all, they'd soon picked out all the good grain and put it into the dish, but left the ashes. Long before the end of the hour, the work was quite done, and all flew out of the windows. Then Ashputal brought the dish to her mother, overjoyed at the thought that now she should go to the ball. But her mother said, No, no, you slut, you have no clothes and cannot dance, you shall not go. And when Ashputal begged very hard to go, she said, If you can, in one hour's time, pick two of those dishes of peas out of the ashes, you shall go too. And thus she thought she should at least get rid of her. So she shook two dishes of peas into the ashes. But the little maiden went out into the garden at the back of the house again and cried out as before, Hither, hither, through the sky, turtle doves and linnets fly, blackbird thrush and chaffinch gay, hither, hither, haste away. One and all, come help me quick, haste ye, haste ye, pick, pick, pick. Then first came two white doves in at the kitchen window. 
Then next came two turtle doves, and after them came all the little birds under heaven, chirping and hopping about. And they flew down into the ashes, and the little doves put their heads down and set to work, pick, pick, pick. And then all the others began, pick, pick, pick. And they put all the good grain into the dishes, and left all the ashes. Before half an hour's time was all done, out they flew again. And then Ashputle took the dishes to her mother, rejoicing to think that she should now go to the ball. But her mother said, It is all of no use. You cannot go. You have no clothes and cannot dance, and you would only put us to shame. And off she went with her two daughters to the ball. Now when all were gone and nobody left at home, Ashputle went sorrowfully and sat down under the hazel tree and cried out, Shake, shake, hazel tree, gold and silver over me. Then her friend the bird flew out of the tree and brought a gold and silver dress for her and slippers of spangled silk, and she put them on and followed her sisters to the feast. But they did not know her and thought it must be some strange princess. She looked so fine and beautiful in her rich clothes, and they never once thought of Ashputal, taking it for granted that she was safe at home in the dirt. The king's son soon came up to her and took her by the hand and danced with her and no one else, and he never left her hand. But when everyone else came to ask her to dance, he said, This lady is dancing with me. Thus they danced till a late hour of the night, and then she wanted to go home. The king's son said, I shall go and take care of you to your home, for he wanted to see where this beautiful maiden lived. But she slipped away from him, unawares, and ran off towards home, and as the prince followed her, she jumped up into the pigeon house and shut the door. Then he waited till her father came home, and told him that the unknown maiden who had been at the feast and hid herself in the pigeon house, but when they had broken open the door, they found no one within, and as they came back into the house, Ashputal was lying, as she always did, in her dirty frock by the ashes, and her dim little lamp was burning in the chimney, for she had run as quickly as she could through the pigeon house and onto the hazel tree, and had there taken off her beautiful clothes and put them beneath the tree, that the bird might carry them away and had lain down again amid the ashes in her little grey frock. The next day, when the feast was again held, and her father and mother and sisters were gone, Ashputal went to the hazel tree and said, Shake, shake, hazel tree, god and silver over me. And the bird came and brought a still finer dress than the one she had worn that day, the day before. And when she came in, into it, the ball, everyone wondered at her beauty. But the king's son, who was waiting for her, took her by the hand and danced with her. And when anyone asked her to dance, he said as before, This lady is dancing with me. When the night came, she wanted to go home. And the king's son followed her as before, that he might see to what house she went. But she sprang away from him all at once into the garden behind her father's house. In this garden stood a fine, large pear tree full of ripe fruit. And Ashputal, not knowing where to hide herself, jumped up into it without being seen. Then the king's son lost sight of her and could not find out where she was gone, but waited until her father came home and said to him, The unknown lady who danced with me has slipped away, and I think she must have sprung into the pear tree. The father thought to himself, Can it be Ashputal? So he had an axe bought, and they cut down the tree, but found no one upon it. And when they came back into the kitchen, there lay Ashputal among the ashes, for she had slipped down on the other side of the tree and carried her beautiful clothes back to the bird at the hazel tree, and then put on her little grey frock. The third day, when her father and mother and sisters were gone, she went again into the garden and said, Shake, shake, hazel tree, gold and silver over me. Then her kind friend, the bird, brought a dress still finer than the former one, and slippers which were all of gold, so that when she came to the feast no one knew what to say for wonder at her beauty, and the king's son danced with nobody but her, and when anyone else asked her to dance he said, This lady is my partner, sir. 
When night came, she wanted to go home, and the king's son would go with her, and said to himself, I will not lose her this time. But however, she again slipped away from him, though in such a hurry that she dropped and left her golden slipper upon the stairs. The prince took the shoe, and went the next day to to the king, his father, and said, I will take for my wife the lady that this golden slipper fits. Then both the sisters were overjoyed to hear it, for they had beautiful feet, and had no doubt that they would wear the golden slipper. The eldest went first into the room where the slipper was and wanted to try it on, and the mother stood by. But her great toe would not go into it, and the shoe was altogether too small for her. Then the mother gave her a knife and said, Never mind, cut it off. When you are queen, you will not care about toes, will you not want to walk? So the silly girl cut off her great toe and thus squeezed on the shoe and went to the king's son. When he took her for his bride and set her beside him on his horse and rode away with her homewards. But on their way home, they had to pass by a hazel tree that Ashputal had planted, and on the branch sat a little dove, singing, Back again, back again, look to the shoe. The shoe is too small and not made for you. Prince, prince, look again for your bride, for she's not the true one that sits by thy side. Then the prince got down and looked at her foot, and he saw, by the blood that streamed from it, that a trick had been played on him. So he turned his horse around and brought the false bride back to her home and said, This is not the right bride. Let the other sister try and put the slipper on. Then she went into the room and got her foot into the shoe, all but the heel, which was too large. But her mother squeezed it in until blood came and took her to the king's son, and she set her as her bride by his side on the horse and rode away with her. But when they came again to the hazel tree, the little dove sat there still and sang, Back again, back again, look to the shoe. The shoe is too small and not made for you. Prince, prince, look again for thy bride, for she's not the true one that sits by thy side. Then he looked down and saw that the blood streamed so much from the shoe that her white stockings were quite red. So he turned his horse and brought her also back again. This is not the true bride, he said to the father. Have you no other daughters? No, said he. There is only a little dirty ash putrel here, the child of my first wife. I'm sure she cannot be the bride. The prince told him to send her, but the mother said, No, no, she's much too dirty. She will not dare to show herself. However, the prince would have her come, and she first washed her face and hands, and then went in and curtsied to him. And he reached her the golden slipper, and it fitted her as if it had been made for her. And when he drew near and looked at her face, he knew her, and said, This is the right bride. But the mother and both the sisters were frightened, and turned pale with anger as he took Ashputal on his horse, and rode away with her. And when they came to the hazel tree, the white dove sang, Home, home, look at the shoe. Princess, the shoe was made for you. Prince, prince, take home thy bride, for she is the true one that sits by thy side. And when the dove had done its song, it came flying and perched upon her right shoulder and so went home with her. And they lived happily ever after. They did. I thought, um, I've read another Grimm's Tales one where the doves then pick the mother's eyes out. Um, I think I've read one where they pick the sister's eyes out and the mother is forced to dance on hot coals until she drops dead. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mixed endings there. Not all yeah. of them happy for everybody. I quite like, I don't know if that's, I haven't read many uh, Brothers Grimm fairy tales yet. Uh, I know you have because I bought you the book for Christmas. Yes. Um, are there many little rhymes and poems and songs in many of the Grimm fairy tales? Lots and lots of them, especially in tales relating to elves or animals. 
um, and Rumpelstiltskin in particular. Um, they, it's quite a plot device. It's it's a good little riddle. Um, it's a nice little thing that flows along sweetly, and it tells a good bit of the detail in that little section. I quite like them. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're nice. And the beginning of that story rings more true to the live-action Disney remake, where yeah. she asks for the, the twig to come back. Yeah, it's it's quite a common theme. They have that, and they have um, In Beauty and the Beast in the original story um, by Madame Villeneuve. Um, he, all of her brothers and sisters ask for fine clothes and things like that, and she just asks for the first rose he sees. So yeah, neither Disney nor the Brothers Grimm invented Cinderella, technically. Her story is in fact more than 2,000 years old. That's old. Yeah, you know Cinderella. Of course you do. We all do. Yeah. She's part of the cultural ether, one of those characters that we get to know whether we want to or not. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember yeah. the, when I first heard of Cinderella, but I feel like I've always known the Cinderella story. We were led to believe that she's a princess that wears a beautiful dress with a shiny headband, glass shoes, long white gloves. She overcomes the adversities that of pure cruelty of her wicked stepmother and sisters who treat her as their serving girl. So she can meet and dance with a very handsome prince, then hurry home before the clock strikes midnight and her carriage becomes a pumpkin again. The Disney version we all know and love. Yeah, and proof that a good pair of shoes can change your life. But that's not the real Cinderella. No. That's the Disney Cinderella, the one from the 1950s animated film and the live-action remake in 2015 starring Lily Lily Evans? I've got Harry Potter there. (laughs) Lily James. There we go. Um, the real Cinderella isn't so easily defined. No. Um, she is a character who weaves together centuries of storytelling and most human cultures, and sometimes her forgotten slipper isn't even glass. <gasps> I know, Carrie, but hold those gaffs. It shall all become clear. Well, we've done some digging, we as have. historians do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first Cinderella we can find, she's Greek. Hmm. <sighs> Um, There are essentially two faces to Cinderella. There's the European folktale that evolved into the modern-day story we know, and there's a centuries-old plot that has been passed between cultures for thousands of years. It's one of those fairy tales that exists cross-culturally. The story of overcoming oppression and marrying into another social class to be saved from a family that doesn't love or appreciate you is an incredibly powerful one, and one that nowadays we know all too well, even though we don't technically have the social classes that it applies to. Um... At the centre of most Cinderella stories, whether they use that name for their protagonist or not, she's also known as Asputor, Vasilisa, for example. We'll we'll get onto that story soon, promise. Um, It's one thing. A downtrodden heroine who rises above her social status through marriage. Yeah. Um, The first recorded story featuring a Cinderella-like figure dates to ancient Greece in the 6th century BC, or BCE. In that story, a Greek courtesan named Rhodopis has one of her shoes stolen by an eagle, who flies it all the way across the Mediterranean and drops it in the lap of an Egyptian king. Taking the shoe drop as a sign from the heavens, literally and metaphorically, the king goes on to que- on a quest to find the owner of the shoe. I mean, you would be curious, wouldn't you? I, you know what? If a shoe landed on me, I, I might be. I mean, I'd be slightly grateful for the first moment he doesn't hit me in the head, but yeah, then I'd be curious. Yeah. Um, when he finds Rodopis, he marries her, lifting her from her slowly, uh, lowly status, slowly status, her <laughs> lowly status to the throne, and the throne of Egypt, no less. So not that dissimilar to the story told now. No. Um, another one of the earliest known Cinderella stories is from the 9th century Chinese fairy tale Yixian. In this particular version, a young girl named Yixian is granted one wish from some magical fish bones, which she uses to create a gown in the hopes of finding a husband. But that was comfy. Well, 
Someone used to wear whalebone corsets, so, you know, why not a fishbone dress? Why not? Um, like Rhodopis's tail, a monarch comes in possession of the shoe. This time, the shoes have a golden fish scale pattern, prettier and probably more practical than glass, may I add, and um, goes on a quest to find the woman whose tiny feet will fit the shoe. Yutian's beauty convinces the king to marry her, and the mean stepmother is crushed by stones in her cave home. Bit more of a dramatic ending, but one that might be warranted. Slightly. Um, another one that I've come across is the story of Beauty and her sister, who is very much on the nose, known as Pockface. <laughs> I mean, it's like let's make it, let's make the difference more obvious here. Beauty you know? and Pockface. Yeah. <laughs> there are there's a couple of versions of this, um, but in each one, Beauty's mother dies, father remarries, has evil stepsister Pockface. Um, they make her basically a servant in the house. Now, in the one, the mother comes back as a goat, and the other, she comes back as a yellow cow. In each one, um, Beauty cries to her and asks her for help, and the mother does the housework for her. Um, When the stepmother finds out, she's very angry. Um, She finds out the source of this, and whilst Beauty is asleep, she kills the mother cow and feeds it to Beauty. Or goat. Or goat. Um, Beauty then goes out, and she's very upset, so she's sitting there... And she's crying because she's absolutely starving with hunger. Um, she's been locked away. The one time that she thought she had some lovely food, it turned out to be her reincarnated mother. <laughs> it gets better. Um, she then finds this tree that's covered in little rice dumplings. So she then goes up and picks these rice dumplings. How they grow on a tree, I've no idea. And um, she starts to eat them. But as she eats them, sometimes the jam inside them squidges down. And there happens to be an old couple sitting under the tree... And they get squidged in the face by some of this rice pudding jam. So they ask her to throw some down. So she does. And when she climbs down from the tree, she sees them sitting there, splatted, covered in rice pudding. Because obviously you drop them from the tree, they're going to splat everywhere. They find the funny side of this, and they get talking to her. She finds her an absolutely lovely old couple. um, And she tells them all about her life. And they say, well, if you're not appreciated here, why don't you come and live with us? We've always wanted a daughter. Um, Come and live with us, and you'll be happy. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so she goes and lives with them. But what she doesn't realise is this lovely old couple are actually a pair of child-eating demons. And they they try and fatten her up, and every night they go to sleep in the bed with her in the middle, because they've only got one bed, they're poor. And um, one night they turn around and she's like, oh, you, you, I'm not really comfortable here. She says, oh, pay no mind, it's just me and my old self. Don't pay no mind to my long talons and my long fangs. Beauty manages to escape with some help from the mouse. The mouse tells her what's going on. Um, they ask the old couple, wake up one day and say, bake some bread, we'll go catch some fish, we'll have dinner. They're not going to catch fish. They're waiting for her to bake the bread that they will eat with her. Um, so the mouse, as in with her, with not her. Yeah. with her, as in they will eat her and the bread. At least it will be nice and dunk in. Yeah, I suppose. But um, this little mouse tells her of the plot and uh, she manages to escape. She then goes and tells her mum... She steals all their treasure, by the way. So she takes it back to her evil stepmother and Pockface. And she tells them all about it. And um, the stepmother, not quite getting the moral of the story here, um, sends Pockface to this family. She basically sends them up the tree, where this old couple are sitting there waiting at the bottom, and then they do the whole spiel, and Pockface is like, yeah, my mother's horrible to me, blah, blah, blah. So they take her away. Pockface is sitting there and then they say oh we'll make the bread and we'll come back and we'll have dinner together um 
And then the mouse comes along and tells her, don't do it, don't make the bread, run for your life. Pockface is like, don't be stupid. I'm not even going to make the bread. I'm just going to sit here. Why should I do servant's work? Because she's never had to do in her life. Mm-hmm. Couple come back. Pockface is eaten. <laughs> the mother is then standing there one day, brushing her lovely long hair. And Ash, um, Ash Law Beauty's back at home at this point. She's safe. Um, mother's brushing her long hair. And a bird comes up to the window and says, whatever you do, don't look out the window. There is naught but bones. And the mother's like, huh, silly little bird. I don't know what you're going on about. Ignore the fact that they can talk to the animals. <laughs> and the bird's like, no, seriously, don't look outside. There is naught but bones. And she's like, I'm going to look out my window. Silly little bird. And the bird's like, really, really, don't look outside. There is naught but bones. Your daughter is dead. She looks outside and there hanging from the tree is a lovely wind chime made out of pockface's bones. But at least she hasn't got a pock face anymore. She hasn't got a pock face, no. And um, Beauty doesn't meet a handsome prince. She just lives to rob all people another day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's, that's slightly different, isn't it? It's slightly different, slightly darker. But that's yeah. the story of Beauty and pock face. Although, in the goat version, the goat keeps her alive by feeding her regurgitated food. So that's a little bit gross. In one, there's, there's a cow that does all the housework, and in the other, there's a goat that feeds her with goat sick. So... Fairy stories are great, great. Swiftly moving on. Um, from the story that we just read, the Grimm's yeah. Brothers version, I think they may have had some issues. Yes. But I bet George R. R. Martin and Stephen King can sympathise with them. Mm. You know, with the whole writing not always happy looking at you, Game of Thrones. Writing doesn't always have to be happy. As Stephen <sighs> King once said, make people fall in love with your character and then put them in danger. Mm. Yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, the European version of the story originated in the 17th century, and in a total, there's more than 500 versions of the Cinderella story that have been found in Europe alone. And the Cinderella we know best comes from here, well, France specifically. Here being Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first version of Cinderella that bears a significant similarity to the most famous version emerged in the 17th century when a story called Go on, Carrie. Serentola? Serentola. Serentola was published in a collection of Italian short stories. Serentola has all the ingredients of the modern-day fairy tale. Uh, The wicked stepmother and stepsisters, the magic, the missing slipper. But it's darker and just a bit more magical. In the story, a woman named Zizola escapes the king who wants to marry her at two separate celebrations. Um, Before he finally catches her at a third celebration, he prevents her from leaving. And instead of a story of requited love, Serentola Serentola. is a story of forced marriage and six very wicked stepsisters. Slightly overkill there. The odds are against her. Yeah. Uh, Sixty years later, the Italian tale got a French twist and became the story that we now know. In Cendrillion, Charles... Perrault. Perrault. I just wondered whether the T was silent. You know French. Charles Perrault first published it in 1697. Um, He was a French writer credited with inventing the fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Um, It was cast cast the form that Cinderella would take for the next 400 years. He introduced the glass slipper, the pumpkin, the fairy godmother, minus the bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, however catchy that may be. This is the Disney version. This is the version that Disney later adapted into its animated classic. Now, Carrie, speaking historically, of course, as it is the theme of our podcasts, did Cinderella invent the wicked stepmother ideal? 
In a word, no. Um, many fairy tales that have their roots in the 17th century, including Snow White, Hansel and Gretel, they feature evil stepmothers who seek to ruin the protagonist's lives. Um, in all of these stories, the stepmother's main enemy is the stepdaughter, a living, breathing reminder of her husband's first marriage. The plot points don't just emerge out of nowhere, however. Most are pulled from real-life scenarios, or at least real-life feelings. As Dr. Wednesday Martin, author of the book Stepmonster, wrote for Psychology Today, stepmothers are frequently singled out for very bad treatment indeed by stepchildren, who pick up on their mother's anger and resentment and become her proxy in their father's household. This is no new problem. Stepmothers, historically, were a very common occurrence, not because of divorce and remarriage, but because so many women died during childbirth. This meant the new wife, and her children, were in direct competition with the first wife's child, not just for love, but also for the inheritance that would decide which station of society they belonged in after the husband's death. Thus, the idea became an overused trope. This also points to what Cinderella is really about. Money. Very cynical outlook there, dude. It's a new perspective look, admittedly, but at its core, Cinderella is about how dependent women once were on men to determine their place in the world. Um, she begins the story as a daughter of a wealthy man. She's an upper-middle-class girl with a good prospects who could potentially marry into an upper-middle-class family with even more prospects. But once her mother dies and her father remarries, her position in the family shifts and her marriage is no longer the primary focus of the family. A prince, in inverted commas, would therefore improve her position in society and thus improve her life. Very 1950s there, subsequently where the Di- when the Disney version was released. Coinkydink? No such thing. Apparently it was also, her dress was modelled on Dior, and it was um, a way to integrate people into the new fashions that were coming in at the time. Hmm. And a little bit of Walt Disney fact for you here, Carrie. I'm going to throw this one in. I'll do okay. it as many times as I can. But you know in the Disney version where Cinderella changes from her pink like drabs that her sisters have ripped up into the beautiful dress yeah that was what disney's favorite bit of animation ever it is a pretty spectacular it's an iconic moment Mm -hmm. isn't it but yeah so what you said before about the whole women being more dependent on men this is quite common in many other stories that employ the same theory yes like consider pretty pretty in pink my fair lady pride and prejudice and pretty women to name a few other stories in which a man's attractiveness is greatly enhanced by having a lot of money yes Sometimes the love affair is between an upper-class woman and their working-class boy. Think Titanic or Aladdin. That's not very common, though, is it? Not as common as the other way around, but no, admittedly. Um, The original Cinderella, written by Perrault, is even more blatantly about social class, because its true moral is that, that by being nice and beautiful, a woman can earn herself a better life. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit screwed there, not going to lie. Why do you think I'm behind the camera? Thus, Cinderella, <laughs> as Disney retold it in the 1950s, is a true embodiment of what period of time that was. And it was thought of as women achieving the American dream, not through work, but through marriage. Mm. Disney chose to adapt Cinderella instead of Ashputal because the former needed help to get anything done and had very little freedom. So it's quite easy to write a story around a girl who's quite passive. Yeah. Uh, while Ashputal does many things of her own free will. Mm. One big example, Cinderella has to be home by midnight, but that's when Ashputal just decides she wants to leave. Exactly. There's there's a lot of things that like society dictates the woman has to do. Mm-hmm. It's like the prince has to pursue her, she can't pursue him, she just has to be there and look pretty. But 
I would also like to say that as much as there's the wicked stepmother in a lot of these, there is also the trope of the absolutely useless father. <laughs> it's it's very rare to find a stepfather who will either believe the daughter's tales of cruelty of the stepmother or will do anything about it. I think the only one I've probably come across so far is in the tale of Vasilisa and Baba Yaga, where Vasilisa is sent by her wicked stepmother. Vasilisa being like a the name Joan, like Joan and John in English for every tale you had Ivan and Vasilisa in, in Baltic ones. Um, she's sent away into the forest by her evil stepmother where she encounters the, the witch Baba Yaga, who is a complicated figure and will probably come back to her at some point, I hope. Um, and she survives her time with Baba Yaga, and then her father finds her. He goes into the forest after finding out what the stepmother had done, and finds her. That's nice. Yeah. On the whole, however, as we've demonstrated with the story tonight, the stepfather's just like the father's just like, oh yeah, I've got this new wife, and sucks to be you, but you might as well do the housework. <laughs> and in that bit, he's like, oh yeah, I don't have another daughter. Just ask Pewtel. I mean, she's my daughter by my first marriage, but we're not counting her. Great parenting. I mean. Parenting 101, guys, do not do that. No, do not. No. But there's a lot more about Cinderella than I ever thought. Like, I knew there was an Ashputal version, but I did not know that Cinderella is, like, 2,000 years old. And it came from Greece. I knew... I didn't know about the Greek one. I knew about the Chinese ones, but I didn't know about the Greek one. And um, I know that in some of them, isn't her slipper made out of squirrel skin? And it's believed an incorrect translation, because the word for... The old Germanic word for squirrel and glass are quite similar. I mean, how do you get mixed up between a squirrel slipper and a grass slipper? I mean, one's got a furry tail, the other one is potentially going to cut you. Actually, no, they both might cut you. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But that is this week's new-sounding TARDIS After Hours. We hope you enjoyed it. If you liked it, then please, please let us know. Um, We're always welcome to feedback. We are. We have slightly changed our um, handles. We're still TARDIS History, but it's more got um spaces in between tarbis and history so uh, we can be easier to differentiate yeah and we're on instagram and twitter we're tarbis underscore history so you can you can find us um by all means leave a review on itunes um or write to us and let us know um we do also on our wordpress blog have our email address on there so we're always happy to have emails if you can suggest um any ways to improve the show where you want us to go, who you want us, or what, where, when, why you want us to talk about something, we'd be more than happy to do it. We do have a couple of suggestions over from Canada um, for a certain autumn, Zastri. We will get to them, I promise. Yeah, and if you do give us a mention or review, we'll give you a shout-out on the show. We shall. But now, on to... I'm excited about this one. (laughs) How did a guy have a ridiculous death involving an alarm clock, Carrie? Well, this is in the mid-1880s, so not long, round about the time or not long after the Grimm brothers were active. Um, We're going over to Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York City, to a Sam Wardell. Now, Sam was a lamplighter. What his job was, was he would take a ladder around the light to light the gas-powered street lamps at dusk and return at dawn to extinguish them. Quite a steady job. Um, they also sometimes serve the additional role of waking the local inhabitants to tell them it was time to get up. Um, perhaps he was one of those people who had trouble waking up in the mornings. It happens. So to ensure that he wouldn't sleep through his alarm, he took his alarm clock and added some modifications like a la Wallace and Gromit. Um, he fixed a wire to the clock, attached the other end to a shelf, placed a four and a half kilogram or ten pound stone on top of the shelf. Mm-hmm. He then rigged the shelf so that every time the alarm went off... The shelf collapsed and the stone would crash to the floor and wake him up. 
presumably, like, I'm hoping he had solid floors and he didn't just crash straight through into the neighbours oh, yeah. below. Happy neighbours. Yeah. Um, it, it worked perfectly until one particular day. Christmas Eve, 1885, he invited some of his friends to his apartment for a party. Nice thing to do. It's Christmas. Why not? Um, in order to make room for them to dance and have fun, he pushed all his furniture to the walls. It was just a one-room, tiny apartment, so he pushed everything to the walls. Um, he must have been very good. He was obviously very drunk because he pushed his bed back without actually bothering to check whereabouts the bed was. I think you know where I'm going with this. <sighs> Following morning, alarm went off, shell fell, stone dropped straight onto his head. It killed him instantly. Basically, um, killed him stone dead. <laughs> <sighs> So, yeah, um, that, that was a rude awakening. <laughs> so, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, if you feel urged to do a oh, Mad Inventors-style alarm clock, don't do it. Especially if it involves a £10 stone. Don't do it. It will not end well for you. Oh, my God. What about those friends who woke up? No, they, they were all gone by this point. He put his bed oh. back after they'd all gone. Oh, okay. Then, I mean, I'm hoping. Cause if but he didn't, didn't put his bed back. He put it back, but put it in the wrong place. Oh, wow. I mean, you'd think he'd Sam Wardell. My man. My condolences, Sam. That I condole ouch. you. Oh. Right. <laughs> oh, and on that uh, stone shell. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. We shall speak with you <laughs> next Tuesday. Thank you for tuning in. Always a pleasure. <laughs>